no to discrimination, no to hate speech, and no to Bradley. Wait, what did I do? Hillary's already mad at me? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui in Hawaii. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the world, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week. On Radio Sputnik. Glad you could join us. You can run, but you can't hide from the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Voters are lining up to vote in Wisconsin today, as we have been discussing over the past week or so. Some 300,000 already registered voters stand to be kept from casting their vote at all on Tuesday, thanks to the Wisconsin GOP's photo ID voting restriction in use on Tuesday for the first time during a major election, despite being found in a federal court to prevent the votes of far more legal voters than it could possibly prevent fraudulent ones. In fact, as uh, Emily uh, Lonegren explained on the broadcast yesterday, there is no known case uh, or cases of voter fraud in the state of Wisconsin that might have been deterred by this new voting restriction. And of course, uh, as expected on Tuesday, uh, we're now seeing reports, uh, particularly in college towns, uh, that lines are as long or longer to get the newly required IDs for college students to vote uh, than at uh, some of the polling places. People trying to get IDs, queuing up for, you know, an hour or more to get that ID and then another hour to try and vote. We're keeping our eyes on that today. There's also a very important state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin with uh, the appointment of a Scott Walker uh, appointee on the court. Her name is Rebecca Bradley. She's an old college chum of Scott Walker's, and he has appointed her to pretty much, well, actually, I think every judicial job that she has ever held in Wisconsin to fill one vacancy after another after another on one bench after another in the state of Wisconsin. Now she sits on the state Supreme Court where he appointed her. Well, she's now finally running against an actual accomplished former judge by the name of Joanne Kloppenberg, who Bradblog readers and uh, uh, broadcast listeners may well remember from 2012, back when uh, when Kloppenberg was announced the winner on election night in her race against this controversial right-wing uh, Supreme Court justice up there in, in, uh, in Wisconsin. 
had Kloppenberg uh, won, then the uh, the balance of the court would have been shifted from the right wingers. Uh, and that was just before the uh, state Supreme Court was set to hear Scott Walker, governor, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker's union busting bill. So that was very, very important at the time. Kloppenberg was named the winner on election night only to lose to that Scott Walker ally, a guy by the name of David Prosser. Once thousands of ballots were found the next day in uh, in right wing Waukesha County. Uh, and there was never really a proper explanation for what happened there, why those ballots did not get uh, properly accounted for on election night. Uh, and it was by a, uh, uh, a county clerk up there in Waukesha who we had reported on years earlier as being one of the worst in the state, one that even the, the, the right wing executive board up there uh, in Waukesha had warned time and time again about her practices and about the fact that she the the tabulation computer was run was an old Windows 95 system kept only in her office. So she had only uh, the only control over it was by her. In any event, that all that controversy led to, you may remember, a, a hand count of all of the ballots across Waukesha County uh, the, and actually across the state at the time. Uh, and, and during that count, Thousands of ballots were found in bags, in ballot bags that had been torn open. The seals had been broken. And the, uh, the, the Nonpartisan Government Accountability Board, which at the time and still oversees elections in Wisconsin, never did a proper review of all of those problem reports that came in. We have photos of them at Bradblog.com. We covered it in great detail. The Government Accountability Board largely ignored it and went ahead and certified that, uh, that hand count anyway. Uh, that the Government Accountability Board will, uh, I think this is going to be their last election on uh, Tuesday, the Wisconsin primary, because uh, the Republicans don't like them, uh, don't like having a nonpartisan uh, group overseeing elections in Wisconsin. So they are doing away with that and replacing them with two partisan commissions that uh, Scott Walker can control. In any event, Going back to uh, today, in addition to the uh, to the primary election on both the Republican and the Democratic side on Tuesday, there is this Supreme Court election where Scott Walker's uh, pal, Rebecca Bradley, is now now has to face the voters. And she had written incredibly offensive comments uh, about gay people back when she was a columnist in college in the 90s, more recently about women and rape, abortion and birth control Um so uh, the same woman, Joanne Kloppenberg, is now challenging Scott Walker's friend, Rebecca Bradley, on the Supreme Court, making the election in Wisconsin on Tuesday even more important. Uh, both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have spoken out against Rebecca Bradley. Here was uh, Hillary Clinton uh, yesterday at a rally. There is a Walker-appointed judge running for the highest court in this state. She compared birth control, which millions of women use every year, to murder. There is no place on any Supreme Court or any court in this country, no place at all for Rebecca Bradley's decades-long track record of dangerous rhetoric against women, survivors of sexual assault, and the LGBT community. So tonight I'm adding my voice to the chorus across Wisconsin saying 
no to discrimination, no to hate speech, and no to Bradley. So that was the Bradley she was so talking she about. Wasn't she wasn't actually talking about you. She wasn't saying no to me. <laughs> uh, hi, Desi Doyen. That's Hello. Desi Doyen, our producer. Um, no, she wasn't saying no to me. Um, and I'm not saying no to her, to, to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> However, I am saying no to the unfair and imbalanced reporting on uh, on this race on the Democratic side. You've got this uh, contest up in Wisconsin. Uh, poll after poll now showing uh, Bernie Sanders ahead. Now, not ahead by a lot. Uh, the average is, uh, according to Real Clear Politics, Bernie Sanders uh, is up above uh, Hillary Clinton uh, by 2.6%. That's averaged out. Uh, in most of these polls, he's up over Hillary Clinton by five or six or four or eight points. Some of them, you know, still within the margin of error, but he's leading in. One, two, what is this? Over the last week, seven different polls. Uh, Bernie Sanders is leading over Hillary in five of those polls. Hillary Clinton is up only in uh, one, notably, by six points. The other one that she's up in, she's up by only one point. And yet, on Monday night, uh, Rachel Maddow covered this race, covered this crucial primary in Wisconsin, and uh, and I, I think fairly described, uh, Des, you, you got to go back and listen to it a little bit closer. Was she fair in her description? She said it was largely a tied race. Bernie was leading in, a, in some of the polls. Yes, her description was quite fair. She said thought, that he seems to be uh, on the leading side of the majority of polls. And yet, while she was talking, there was one big, huge graphic up on the screen showing Wisconsin Democratic presidential choice, likely Democratic primary voters. And it was a picture of uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And it showed Hillary Clinton plus six, a great big, huge blue plus six. And this graphic remained on the screen for at least 30 seconds. Yes. Uh, and it was the only one that she showed. It was the only poll that she showed. It was this Loris uh, College poll out of Wisconsin. And so you had to sort of stare at this big Hillary plus six Wisconsin Democratic presidential choice graphic uh, showing her up uh, ahead of Bernie 4741. Now, uh, we had been following these polls and saw that Bernie Sanders had taken the lead by and large from Hillary uh, a week or so ago. And so I went back and I looked at the polling again over at Real Clear Politics, where they list all of the polls. And sure enough, there was a new poll that had just come out yesterday from ARG. That was the one I mentioned where Hillary Clinton was up by one point. The other ones, you go down the list, and this is from most recent to the oldest over just the past week. So you had ARG, Clinton plus one. Emerson poll, Sanders plus eight. CBS News, YouGov, Sanders plus two. Fox Business, Sanders plus five. PPP, Sanders plus six. Finally, finally, then you get to the Loris poll from uh, March, from late March, uh, from March 28, March 29, showing Clinton plus six. That was the one they showed on the screen for all of that time during that story about the Wisconsin poll. And then Marquette uh, University poll, which uh, many regard as the gold standard up there in Wisconsin, Sanders up by four. I've uh, so, you know, people have accused MSNBC of putting their thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton. And I think uh, they do so with uh, fairly good evidence to support them, to be frank. 
for whatever reason, I don't know. I don't know why they want to support Hillary, but, uh, you know, in their coverage, they have uh, leaned towards Hillary. We complained about Rachel Maddow a, a week or so ago, you know, showing only the delegate totals that included the superdelegates not the actual voted delegates, and not explaining to uh, to viewers what the difference was. So that's a problem, seems to me. And uh, when I went, Desi, to ask you, oh, go find out, uh, if you don't mind, how long actually they were playing that one card, you know, that one graphic showing Hillary up by six, you went online to see if you could grab it. What did you find? Well, I looked up the uh, that segment on the Rachel Maddow show on mm-hmm. the MSNBC website, and that graphic is no longer there. That graphic showing Hillary Clinton being up six. It was replaced <laughs> by the uh, list of polls that you just mentioned showing Bernie up instead. Shows her up by one and then all of the other, then four more polls that uh, Bernie is leading in. That's for the online version. Why the air version only had that one? Was it a technical glitch? Well, uh, I tried to get a comment from MSNBC and Rachel Maddow, and I finally got one just before airtime, Des. Uh, They say that, yes, at 9 p.m., that's their Eastern time, their first showing, we meant to show a recent set of polls with Sanders mostly leading. As the script said, we fixed the graphic for the 12 a.m. re-air and for the web, and then they they put the uh, copy of the corrected graphic. So that's the explanation. I tweeted about the problem today. It made a lot of people angry, but that is the explanation from MSNBC about what happened on the uh, Rachel Maddow show on the eve of that uh, crucial primary in Wisconsin. All right, in St. Louis County, Missouri, Uh, I had also warned about this last week Uh, in Missouri, St. Louis City and St. Louis County are both holding elections, local elections. They had uh, Missouri had their presidential primary a few weeks ago. And because of the speed by which they are having their local elections just a couple of weeks later, officials in Missouri, in St. Louis and St. Louis City and County have said they they would not have time to reprogram all of the touchscreens. So they are going to use exclusively paper ballots in both uh, the county and the city for this election on Tuesday. And uh, I begged and I normally they have uh, either touchscreens or paper. They usually point people towards the paper in St. Louis County, which I know because it happens to be my old hometown, St. Louis County, Missouri. But this time they were only going to use paper because they had no time or money to reprogram all of those touchscreens in time. So they're going to use paper ballots. And I had warned, I had begged, I had pleaded St. Louis County to please get it right. Don't pull what happened in Illinois recently on the uh, in the March 22nd primary where they ran out of paper ballots around the country or around the state because they had such a high turnout um, to not let what happened back in 2014 when St. Louis County also ran out of paper ballots, leading to huge long lines in places like Ferguson. Not long, it was, I think it was the first election after uh, Michael Brown had been killed by uh, by the police out there in Ferguson, Missouri, and they ran out of ballots. At the time, we reported exclusively at bradblog.com when election officials were saying, oh, we had no idea. We It was just unexpected turnout, unexpected demand. Who knew that voters would be angry after Ferguson? Well, as it turns out, they knew, despite the fact that they told uh, election officials told St. Louis Public Radio the day after the election that, uh, quote, unexpected demand for paper ballots caused a shortage at about 95 polling places throughout the county on Tuesday. 
and that those paper ballot shortages were the, quote, biggest unexpected problem on Election Day. They weren't unexpected at all. Not at all. And uh, they were warned. Election officials were warned in San Luis County back in 2014. I got the emails showing uh, going back and forth between election integrity folks out there in Missouri saying, uh, yeah, you guys are planning for, you know, just 15 percent. Uh, of the electorate, uh, paper ballots for just 15%, I think you're going to need a whole lot more. And they said, oh, well, we, we can always print out more if we need to. Well, they couldn't print out more. It led to huge lines, uh, people being turned away, unable to cast their vote. And guess what? That's what we're seeing in St. Louis County again on Tuesday. This time, however, the problems were happening immediately upon opening, uh, upon opening the polling places. Uh, it's just incredible. Uh, they they're they're calling now to extend it because um, on uh, on Tuesday morning, the election board was scrambling to deliver ballots to the last of the 24 precincts throughout the county that had no ballots or incorrect ballots on hand when the first voters showed up at 6 a.m. They were already out of ballots or they had the wrong ballots. They completely screwed up in St. Louis County. And by the way, that was after. Uh, you know, this last snafu in, in 2014, the election director back then, who I quoted and I, I spoke with at the time, her name was Rita Days. She was fired after that. They've replaced her with somebody else, somebody else who was equally good, apparently, at completely screwing up the job. Wow. So uh, I guess they don't listen to the broadcast either because I begged and pleaded for them to get well, this right. Well, apparently they don't listen yeah. to anybody no. because it's not like, you know, you yeah. don't have the history of recent elections to guide mm -hmm. you or what's happened. Oh, I don't know. In the last couple of months, just in a few states that have already had crushing voter turnout. Yep. This is this is unbelievable. Voters are being asked to return later in the day. Like, you know, they, like can, they do can do that. that yeah, yeah, that's easy. Uh, Tom Jennings uh, showed up at uh, outside a, uh, a precinct at Our Lady of Lords Parish Elementary School shortly before 6 a.m. to can uh, to canvas for a, uh, a candidate out there in, in U City University City for the uh, city council. Remember, this is not the presidential election. This is Missouri. This is the local elections. Uh, and to my mind, these are just as important as presidential elections. When people need to vote, they need to be able to vote. Uh, Jennings said that uh, they had ballots for the very first people that came in, and that was it after that. They ran out, like, immediately. Um, St. Louis Post-Dispatch notes that this uh, botched uh, election on Tuesday fit a pattern of missteps that have plagued voting in St. Louis County for years, in addition to problems with voting machines. Oh, you think? As of uh, Tuesday afternoon, uh, St. Louis County Board of Elections is now petitioning the county circuit court to allow polls to extend uh, their hours past the 7 p.m. closing. So if you tried to vote in St. Louis, try to go back. But they're even talking about extending voting on to Wednesday. So that's going on in St. Louis. Up in Wisconsin, we mentioned the, the photo ID concerns. We will be keeping our eyes on that as the day and the night progresses and as results are reported in what could be a key primary on both the Democratic and Republican sides of the aisle. And, of course, we'll have full coverage Ah, oh, boy, on tomorrow's broadcast and uh, and beyond. Um, so as we wait for that, a few other things that are uh, are going on. I want to get to mentioning uh, putting your thumb on the scale uh, on Monday. Governors Jerry Brown out here in California and Andrew Cuomo in New York 
Both signed legislation to raise their prospective state minimum wages closer to a living wage to $15 an hour over a matter of years. California's current $10 an hour wage won't get up to uh, all the way up to $15 until 2022. And yet, as you might have expected, the misinformists, I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, and propagandists uh, uh, who are allowed to control our nation's media are out there in full force lying about this. Here was Stuart Varney and three, count them, three guests on Fox Business News today offering, uh, frankly, a breathtaking, uncountable number of lies and disinformation about the minimum wage in, in less than 90 seconds. California and New York acted yesterday to push gradually their statewide minimum wage to $15 an hour. But the governor of California made an interesting comment. What did he say, Liz? He was pretty hesitant. He said, you know, it may not economically work. It may not make sense economically. He, but, well, you he know, said we, that? Yes, but he, we, he said we live in a moral community. <laughs> Meanwhile, a state legislator in the Central Valley, he's a Democrat, Adam Gray, said this will hurt our small businesses in the Central Valley. Well, so that's Keller. interesting that there's a split in California. Well, he admitted that it's he admitted economically that it, not a good idea. Right. It, it's One a terrible Democrat. idea because anyone running a small business that now is forced by the government to raise wages, they're going to lay people off. So people are going to lose their job oh, over yeah. this. Uh, it oh. makes no sense. I, I hear they're Todd so Horowitz chuntering away in the background there. What do you got to say on the $15 an hour minimum yeah. wage? Todd? It's a killer. It's going to put every business in, in trouble, and it's going to bring robots instead of people who are going to put robots to work. A so full-time full minimum wage job in California pays $30,000 a year when this deal goes through. $30,000 a year for some youngster. Entry-level job, 30000 bucks a year. Seven, like a, seven other states pushing for $15 Aye. minimum, including Illinois. Oh, it's outrageous. Outrageous. How dare people make a, a, a proper living? By the way, this is not just, you know, young people how many millions of americans are, uh, are are you know working for minimum wage trying to support their family but no this bill it's a killer uh, it will put every business will be in trouble it will put quote most businesses out of business according to fox news and uh, of course uh, what fox news didn't bother to note i don't think is that you know for example washington post reported on april 4 that a leaked poll conducted by republican pollster frank luntz found that 80% of respondents in this poll respondents who were business executives actually support raising the state's minimum wage while only 8% opposed it i don't know why they didn't mention uh, how business executives feel about this on Fox Business News. Uh, but anyway, uh, at least not in that segment. Des, go ahead and play the uh, play the opposing because uh, it's Fox News. So they're fair and balanced. Play the uh, play the opposing uh, uh, clip, the fair and balanced clip from Fox. Oh, yeah, there isn't one. What? <laughs> they didn't put the other side of the argument? Nope. I guess then it's left to us. We will cover the other side of the argument uh, and even the Fox side of the argument in a fair and balanced segment next with our friend David Dayan. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. 
please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It has been, quote, an absolutely bonkers week for minimum wage hikes, wrote Lydia DePillis at the Washington Post on Friday. And that was before the signings of uh, two minimum wage bills to raise the minimum wage to $15 in both New York and California. Uh, on Monday, California decided to raise the state's floor to $15 an hour statewide by 2020. I'm sorry, by 2022, on Thursday night, New York state leaders cut a deal to get uh, to that $15 within three years in New York City and six years in Long Island and Westchester and $12.50 an hour within five years in the rest of the state. The biggest employer in Pennsylvania, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, announced it was raising its minimum wage to $15 by 2021 in Montgomery County, Maryland. County Council members announced a new $15 wage proposal last Thursday. With each new mandate, of course, come warnings of job apocalypse, DePillis uh, notes in the uh, in the Washington Post, quoting the right wing Heritage Foundation's James Shirk bemoaning the District of Columbia's $15 an hour proposal. Charging that while the minimum wage sounds compassionate, it will probably hurt the very workers its advocates want to help. Very nice that he's concerned about that. In fact, studies continue to show that minimum wage hikes, at least to date, have no meaningful effect on uh, employment. In truth, uh, DePillis adds in the post that even if it does, at higher wage levels, lower turnover costs for employees who who don't have to uh, for employers, I should say, who who won't have to then uh, keep hiring new employees all the time because they leave, come and go from these low paying jobs, uh, that that would allow businesses to retain staff and the increased disposable income for low wage workers would then create more jobs in the community. For advocates of minimum wage increases, she explains, the question isn't whether minimum wage hikes will kill jobs, but rather how to help people who end up unemployed when and if they do. So that is a key point. And it seems to be that it's really the only uh, it's only when it comes to increasing the minimum wage that a lot of folks like uh, the Right Wing Heritage Foundation and the folks on Fox Business, uh, so they suddenly become concerned about how public policy might affect job loss. Huh. They don't care about it on the trade deals and everything else. Writing about all of this of late, including one righteous rant about it all recently on the Twitters, is our old friend David Dayan. He's a financial journalist and contributing columnist at Salon, Fiscal Times, New Republic, Washington Post, and everywhere else. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Chain of Title, 
how three ordinary Americans uncovered Wall Street's great foreclosure fraud. And it's a really uh, smart book of investigative journalism looking into these people who uh, these consumers who figured out this great con that was going on. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. That book comes out May 2016. David Dane, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me on the show again. My pleasure. I want to ask you uh, about the arguments that w- were brought up in DePillis's piece in Washington Post, uh, Wonk Blog. Don't know if you saw that. Uh, mm-hmm. Also about your own recent piece on minimum wage at Salon and that righteous rant I mentioned. But uh, on Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the U.S. economy grew by some 215,000 jobs in March. That was the 73rd straight month of private sector growth, jobs growth in any event, in the U.S. And yet the unemployment rate ticked up slightly from 4.9% to 5%. How does that happen that we add another 215,000 jobs and yet unemployment goes up? And uh, is this a good thing, that the 73 straight months of private sector jobs growth? It is a good thing. Uh, the, the reason that the unemployment rate went up is that more people returned to look for work. There were, the the way the unemployment statistics are calculated, Mm -hmm. there are millions of people who are effectively uncounted because they have given up looking for work. They uh, have not returned to the job force, whether they've gone to school or they are, you know, just discouraged in some manner or another. Uh, What that means that uh, the, the... the rate went up is that the denominator is bigger all of a sudden. There are more people looking for work, actively seeking jobs. And that's what we need because that uh, denominator, that labor force participation rate, mm-hmm. has gone down severely during, uh, during the recession and stayed there. There were millions of people who were just out of the job force. And so this is a good sign that some, you know, the the, the nature of the labor market is such that people are encouraged to come back in and look for work again. So that's actually a good thing. So we would expect that sort of thing with an improving economy that you would see more people saying, okay, it is now time to go back and and find a job. Correct. Uh, Because it means that the climate is such that they actually think they they can manage to find one. All right. Well, a, a deal. What that is good news. Uh, and, and by the way, seventy-three straight months of private sector gro- jobs growth is is that a record? Which I know a, yeah. it is actually a record. Uh, yeah, that you're talking about over six years now. Now that growth, first of all, came after the largest reduction in the workforce since the Great Recession. Mm. So there was a lot to make up. So and they and furthermore, since since you mean growth, David David, you mean since the Great Depression. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Since Great Depression, yes. And okay. um, and uh, that growth was was uh, fairly low for a long time. So we were very slowly filling that hole that we dug during the Great Recession, mm-hmm. uh, uh, following the financial crisis of 2008. So okay. it's not in, it's not incredibly surprising, but we're saying that for over six years there has not been a blip on this radar screen that has uh, uh, dropped private sector job growth. So obviously that's possible. Okay. Well, that is good news. Uh, So a a deal now uh, has been made to increase the minimum wage to $15 by 2022 in the state of California. 
Uh, my yeah. state, our state, David Dayen, uh, that was struck last week among uh, with lawmakers and the governor in California in advance of what had promised to be, as I understand it, two different minimum wage initiative, ballot initiatives that were set to be uh, on, on an upcoming ballot. You wrote a few days ago at Salon that this is a very big deal. Why is this uh, such a big deal? Why is this bigger than uh, similar increases we're beginning to see around the country elsewhere? Right. I mean, just just on the raw numbers, uh, one in every eight workers in America is a Californian. Mm. And uh, under this proposal, over 33 percent of them are going to get a raise Mm. at some point along the way between now and 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thereafter, because uh, after 2022, it goes up uh, with inflation. It gets uh, the minimum wage gets indexed to inflation. Gets so tied to inflation so, beyond that. Yeah, gets tied after 2022. So, so would that mean? And then would that mean, David, that thereafter uh, we wouldn't have these continual fights because it's That's just correct. a matter of inflation? That's okay. That's correct because it would index with inflation. That so, seems huge um, on its own. That seems a, a huge element. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and so yeah, this is a, a huge deal, uh, especially because, as you alluded to, there was going to be this very messy fight where two factions of the same union, in in some sort of weird grab for credit, were mm-hmm. trying to pass their own separate minimum wage measures on the California ballot in November, which was going, uh, you know, the last time that something. Similar to this happened in California, both of them lost mm. because it's it's confusing. You don't know if you have to pass one and not pass the other, and and it, it just is uh, a recipe for disaster. So thankfully, all of that was uh, kind of put to the side mm-hmm. now that uh, Governor Brown and labor leaders got together to do this, and uh, you know it's it's really. Uh, a testament to the power of activism. I mean, before the Fight for 15 inaugurated in 2012, nobody would have believed that you could get a $15 an hour living wage mm-hmm. minimum in the state of California, in the state as big as California. Mm. Uh, so so really, hats off to, to the Fight for 15 workers who, who really pushed this in, in tremendous way. And, and how much of that, and this sort of gets ahead uh, of uh, where I had hoped to go first, but let me just jump to it for the moment. Uh, how much of this would you attribute, not just to the Fight for 15, but also, uh, you know, the, the Sanders campaign has been calling for $15 an hour minimum wage for some time. Mm-hmm. I think Hillary... She's calling for just $12 an hour? Do I have that? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Uh, but between and, and yet the union that uh, endorsed her, the Service Employees International Union, has been basically at the forefront of the fight for 15. They <laughs> bankrolled the entire campaign. And yet she does not call for what it is that that union... Okay. She sent out an approving tweet after <laughs> okay. after California uh, made the deal. Okay, well that's, that's I can say. Th- yeah. But the, yeah, the power I mean, of the tweet. You're you're what you're getting at is, you know, all of these things, the fight for 15, Occupy Wall Street, the focus on inequality, Thomas Piketty's book, mm-hmm. the the Sanders campaign, all of this is rumbling forward and moving Democrats who who uh, control states like California and New York into places that they were uncomfortable to go previously. 
Uh, and that is a, a testament to how this issue of inequality has become the, the, the functional primary issue uh, in American politics today. Is it fair to say, David Dayen, when uh, we see critics of you know the, the old Occupy Wall Street movement, oh, they, they never got anything done, they dissipated, they were crushed, whatever, yeah. they never had any demands. Uh, is, 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 that a, is it fair to say that it was because of the, uh, the Occupy movement that all of this stuff suddenly came on the radar back in, what, 2010, 2011? I would say that there is no question that as a framing about the 1% and the 99% and income inequality and wealth inequality, uh, Occupy was a catalyzing movement. And 5.6 million workers in California who are going to get a raise in the next several years uh, in part, has Occupy Wall Street to thank. The $15 minimum wage that is now sweeping the nation, uh, as I noted, uh, critics say, oh, this is going to, it's going to kill jobs. Um, Washington Post describes an emerging view by some what they describe as liberal economists that even if some job loss happens, Due to minimum wage increases, the overall benefits to workers in the broader economy outweigh them. And perhaps more interesting, uh, those kind of considerations are almost never made in all sorts of other public policies like trade deals uh, and so forth. Yeah. The uh, TPP actually builds in compensation mechanisms for uh, uh, any yeah, job losses that's, that's that might occur. Nothing, next to nothing. I mean, it's like uh, that's like saying you're taking somebody's job, but you yeah. put a nickel in the tip jar for them. Well, right. Fair enough. But my point being, uh, when these companies, when these Corporations, uh, you know, when they want to see uh, any kind of public policy that might affect jobs in some fashion, well, they'll build in something to deal with that rather than saying, oh, no, we can't do it. We can't have these trade deals because it'll kill jobs. They don't seem to give a damn about that. It only seems to matter when it comes to the minimum wage. Suddenly they're concerned about job loss. First, is there any yeah. real evidence that uh, raising the minimum wage decreases jobs in any substantive way? Right. Well, I mean, this is new territory. You know, $15 an hour is a level at which we haven't seen in a while. But mm -hmm. it's important to understand, we're not going to $15 an hour tomorrow. Right. We are, we are getting there through a deliberative process of six years in California, <laughs> right. where we we are at ten dollars an hour right now. Yeah, it goes to ten fifty at the beginning of next year. It goes to eleven at the at beginning of twenty eighteen, and then raises a dollar for each four years after that until you get to twenty twenty two. So this 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 hand wringing on the part of of uh, economists mm -hmm. and business leaders. We're going to know, we're going to have data for years and years before we get to that actual point. And there are off-ramps in the law that if this is indeed having the, the terrible effect that these uh, economists claim, uh, there is a mechanism by which the governor can temporarily pause uh, any, any, any wage increase from year to year. So uh, it, it, it's it's just a, a it's kind of a silly argument to to, to always be foregrounding this concern and and the point I made on Twitter, which you alluded to, mm -hmm. is that we not just public policy, but we see all kinds of experiments. We see workers used as guinea pigs all the time 
by businesses, whether it's uh, through just-in-time scheduling, where mm-hmm. they decide to schedule you an hour before your job is, uh, 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 you know, starts, mm-hmm. uh, or the 401k economy or the 401ks, mm-hmm. like moving from a defined benefit system to a defined contribution retirement system, or uh, the freelance economy, moving people from full-time to part-time work. All of these things, uh, all of these experiments that are done on workers, and not these same economists that are so worried about the uh, the, the state of workers when, with this experiment with the minimum wage, had never said a darn thing about all of these experiments that hurt workers, uh, that we knew were going to hurt workers at the time, because it was literally about cutting their wages and getting rid of their benefits and putting them in hazardous workplaces, uh, it's it, 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 Spare me this rhetoric that you care about workers when uh, you, you've sat by idly over 40 years as work has become more and more and more devalued. And I'm speaking with uh, David Dayen, a financial reporter and author. Uh, David, this underscores kind of a, a point that I have tried to make over the years, uh, a problem, if you will, or not even a problem, just a fact of capitalism. So I want you to speak to this, David. Tell me if I'm right or wrong, what I'm missing here, what I'm getting. It's, it, it seems to me that it is a corporation's, a business's uh, fiduciary responsibility to yeah. increase profits for shareholders. So all of those things you're talking about, uh, you know, just-in-time scheduling, uh, moving workers from full-time to part-time, that increases their profits. Frankly, that is what they are supposed to do. That's their only real legal responsibility, uh, you know, is to increase profits. So they would be crazy. Well, let, let me stop you yeah, there, okay. however. Okay, because good. Because that myth mm-hmm. of shareholder value, that mm-hmm. this is the only thing that corporations are allowed to think about that this is a rule that this is this is an iron law is a relatively recent phenomenon mm. that was created by Milton Friedman in 1970 and he said that shareholder value is the only important thing that corporations are only exist to produce profit and value for their shareholders mm. prior to that we had a thing called managerial capitalism where managers had uh, many concerns. It was not just the concerns of shareholders. It was the concerns of their community. It was concerns of the workers that worked for them. It was the concerns of the long-term value and health of the company. And all of those things legally Mm -hmm. are still inputs that that managers can make to determine uh, various policies throughout their corporation. It is not the case. It is not a legal imperative right. that only shareholders have to benefit from a corporation. Uh, understood. I'm not saying that that's the only thing that they can do, but I'm saying that ultimately it, that it, is... It's what it's become, though. Okay. And it's become that over the last 30, 40 years, and this is a propagandistic way in which it has become that because mm-hmm. people like Milton Friedman and his acolytes shouted that for years and years and years, and that became the watchword of the business world. Uh, So my view is we need to break that, that myth. 
Well, and realize that this doesn't even do well for shareholders when you do that. Well, okay, fair enough. And and I should say, no relation to Milton Friedman. He is not my <laughs> no, uncle. No, no, I am not. I, that's I'm right. Aware of that. But uh, the point being, uh, with this idea in mind, and 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 that has taken hold over the past thirty or forty years, whether it is correct or not. My point is that. Uh, in fact, uh, corporations do need to make a profit or do want to make a profit. That's what they're going to keep their eye on in so many cases. So therefore, we need uh, these type of government mandate. You need the government to come in and make a mandate to to assure the broader uh, health or the general welfare, if you will, of the people and the economy that we live in. Uh, Right. So they're not required to be nice. Corporations are not required to be nice. Uh, to their communities or to, or to their employees, um, no, and that's why you the need the government to do help this, their right? Bottom line, yeah, it would, it would actually improve their bottom line if they happen to be right. Uh, well, would true. be my theory, uh, and and the theory of managerial capitalism. Fair enough, but you need the government to come in and say. You're not just going to do this for fun. If you're not going to close the help us close the you know the wage gap between the rich and the poor, then it needs to be mandated. That's the only way that it ultimately it seems like it's going to happen. There's obviously a role, and actually the role begins with the corporate charter, which you know governments give mm-hmm. to corporations, and they can extract promises and and guarantees. In exchange for that corporate charter, we've gone completely away from this idea that uh, corporations have a responsibility by virtue of the charter that that governments grant upon them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would like to see us get back to that point uh, in some way. But you are uh, correct that that government can play a role when uh, corporations act uh, in in a pure self-interested manner for the, the benefit of executives and shareholders. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and, and that is part of what we're seeing. It's a backlash to uh, decades of, of productivity and wages separating, where the productivity of businesses has gone way up and the wages remain stagnant. In other words, the workers are not participating in the fruits of, the, uh, of their own labor. They're not... Uh, reaping the benefits that they created. Uh, and so uh, it, it is the role of government to try to rebalance that. And uh, the wage is just, you know, minimum wage is just one tool mm-hmm. in that toolbox. Uh, in, in increasing the power of collective bargaining is another tool mm-hmm. in that toolbox. Uh, using things like the earned income, income tax credit uh, that, that rewards work uh, and 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 supplements it is another tool in that toolbox. Well, there, there are plenty of them. right. Well, and 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 you argue that government can do this. I'm arguing that uh, government must do this because these companies are not going to do it on their own. Some of them may be smart enough to realize, oh yeah, if we have a you know a, a, a happier workforce, that's going to be better overall for our company. But as you note, over the past you know 30, 40 years, that doesn't seem to happen very often, and it seems like now. Uh, therefore, it requires these mandates in order to, to, to bend the curve of what we've seen for so many years you, with you, the, uh, the wage gap. You can make that require. Yeah, uh, it's true. But all I'm saying is you, you can require to make that. You can make that requirement much earlier okay. uh, along the game, which is through the dispensation of the corporate charter. You can force uh, uh, a lot of policy mm. through. And uh, that's, I, I think, of uh, kind of an un, unseen uh, potential area. There's also 
you know, the, the, the fact that we have these, this extreme market concentration. And uh, the, the U.S. has laws that have been on the books for over a century to break that stranglehold uh, and, and use the antitrust laws to promote competition. And if you have competition, you're going to have competition for better wages. So you mean uh, extreme so, market concentration? You're talking about monopolies well, or near monopolies by the big banks and the big corporations and so forth. And, uh, big everything. Big everything. Exactly. Supermarket. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> ten ten companies make everything in your supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there are okay. a host of ways that government can get involved in this and fix this. The minimum wage is one, and it's really captured the imagination mm-hmm. of uh, the activists. And uh, the, the public is responding, as we know, even in down years for Democrats, mm-hmm. you see minimum wage ballot measures succeed in red states yep. uh, like Alaska and South Dakota. Uh, this is something that the, the public basically believes this fundamental point, that if you are working full time, you should be able to support yourself. <laughs> and that's sort of the fundamental idea behind a living wage and uh this this claim that it will hurt workers if you give them a raise so that they can actually support themselves is 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 really kind of meritless and and the argument being pointed out by uh, some of these economists now is that well if we lose some jobs maybe that's okay that these were crap jobs in the first place that don't pay enough uh, and that overall, the benefits... Nobody should go to work for 40 hours a week and not be able to afford a place to live or uh, food on their table or health care or any of these uh, basic necessities. And uh, it is okay to get rid of crap jobs and force corporations to uh, uh, whoever they hire to make sure that they're taken care of and, and, and in a, at a basic level. We're not talking, mm-hmm. you know, $30,000 a year is what you would get uh, 50 hours a week working at, uh, you know, 50, 50 mm-hmm. weeks a year, 40 hours a week working mm-hmm. at $15 an hour. These are not princely <laughs> wages. No, not at all. These are things that are completely affordable to corporations that make hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars and have a lot of them stashed overseas. David, I've uh, already taken you a few more minutes than I had uh, promised I would. I don't know if you have another minute or two. Did you hear? I'd love to play this uh, this audio. This was a, a couple of weeks ago. I've, it was only just brought to my attention uh, from Asher Adelson. Uh, did you happen to see this on CNBC? This um, this guy. No, who- no, just. Yeah, he he's a uh, was a stockbroker. Uh, apparently, the Gordon Gecko character in Wall Street was somewhat based on this guy. He goes on CNBC in this uh, what do they call it? Godfathers of uh, Wall Street segment. He's asked about the economy, and uh, he he made two points of note. I want to play both of them for you. Here, here's the first one. I want to get your your reaction right. to this. You say that we are currently in a recession. Every Fed official who speaks to us tells us we are not in a recession. What are they missing? I think it's pretty straightforward. The average American has not had an increase in pay in 15 years, but things have cost, cost more in the marketplaces. He has been in a recession for 15 years. Nothing's changed for him. Uh, up at the top, we're not in a recession. But 80% of the Americans have been in a recession for at least 15 years. So how does that uh, translate into investing, into the stock market? Is it that... It's a recession that nobody seems like nobody realizes we are in one, and certainly nobody realizes we've been in one for 15 years. Who is your nobody? 
I think the broader investing public, if you uphold anybody on the street or anybody on this desk well, right it here. Like, it sounds like you're talking more about financial oppression than you are an economic decline. I mean, I, I get the fact that a lot of people aren't doing as well because structurally society isn't rewarding them maybe where they should. I don't, I'm not going to get into that. That's a social the, issue. I'm talking about money and economics. People can buy less for what they have now than they could 15 years ago. In their lives, that's a recession. Uh, pretty good, David. Uh, no, Tremendous. Yeah, yeah no, nobody thinks we're in a recession. This was a panel of folks on CNBC all disagreeing with this guy. Uh, any, any nobody thinks except for the 80% of people uh, <laughs> who he just, he just described. And one more clip I want to I play because this, uh, you and really you have to see the video to see the expression on the CNBC's folks' face when they asked uh, Asher Edelman, again, the guy who was uh, the character of Gordon Gecko in Wall Street was based on, uh, well, when he asked him this question. Go ahead. We're asking everybody essentially, who you think the best candidate for the economy would be? Bernie Sanders. Without a doubt. Why is that? What, no what question. Policies? Well, I think it's quite simple again. If you look at something called velocity of money, you guys know what that is, I presume. Mm -hmm. That means how much gets spent and turns around. When you have the top 1% getting money, they spend 5 10% of what they earn. When you have the lower end of the economy getting money, they spend 100 or 110% of what they earn. As you've had a transfer of wealth to the top and a transfer of income to the top, you have a shrinking uh, consumer base, basically, and you have a shrinking velocity of money. Mm -hmm. Bernie is the only person out there who I think is talking at all about both fiscal stimulation and banking rules that will get the banks to begin to generate lending again as opposed to speculation. Okay. So from an economic point of view, it's straightforward. So you had to see their faces, David, when he said uh, Bernie Sanders. I, I guess you can imagine that doesn't happen on CNBC. It does not happen uh, a lot on CNBC. But, you know, I mean, what he's talking about with the velocity of money, this uh -huh. is a key point that gets made in these minimum wage debates, or should at least, is that when you increase wages, give a raise to people who are making 8 9 $10 an hour, they're going to spend that money that they get because they'll, they'll need to spend it for basic necessities. And that increases the velocity of money. It circulates more money through the economy. It, it might spur the need for more workers because you're going to have more economic activity and more needs on, on you know, consumer needs on the part of uh, those people. Why so don't we hear more? Yeah. We, we very rarely talk about the minimum wage in those terms, but it's, it's you're giving more money to people who have a bigger propensity to spend it rather than having that money go into the corporate coffers and go mm -hmm. to some executive who has no need to spend it. Uh, it, it seems like a no-brainer when it's put that way. You know, the, 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 when people, uh, poor people get money, they spend it. It immediately goes into the, uh, into the economy. That was the argument that's been made, you know, even for food stamps. That stuff, that money uh, goes into the uh, unemployment and so forth. That goes into the economy, uh, unlike with the rich people. Before I let you go, David Dayen, um, d do you have an opinion about which presidential candidate would be best for the economy? That question that Asher uh, Edelman just answered? I mean, I think he looks at it in an interesting way. Obviously, there's the practical issue that presidents aren't dictators and they uh, have to work with Congress to get something passed. And, you know, it, viewed through that lens, I'm not sure anybody 
would uh, uh, to do anything if we uh, assume that the the gerrymandering of the Republican uh, districts holds. Uh, now it might mm-hmm. not. Uh, mm-hmm. You might get a, a Democratic majority in the House, although that's somewhat doubtful. Um, so you have to sort of look at it through those practicalities. Um, there are things that presidents can do without passing legislation. Uh, it's somewhat limited, but uh, I think in terms of better oversight, uh, management, uh, and 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 most important, the sort of viewpoint that those key policymakers would take, not about you know propping up. Mm-hmm. Wall Street or engaging in, 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 in things that benefit corporations, but, but really looking out for workers, uh, you know, you can definitely see that, that, that Bernie would have that, that viewpoint really right at the center of his, his administrative. You don't get you don't get to go on CNBC, David Day, and uh, that's <laughs> not the right answer. Well, uh, if Asher does, then why not me? Apparently, he kept it a secret uh, until he until they asked him about it. David Day, a financial journalist, contributing columnist at Salon, Fiscal Times, everywhere else, and the author of the upcoming fascinating book, Chain of Title. How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. You can pre or you can and should pre-order it now. I had hoped to talk about it uh, a bit more this time, David, but we didn't get to it. That only means I get to have you back and we get to talk about it in more detail in the near future. There we go. We'll do it. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Great, Greatly appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Running late, quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast and some debate news right here. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Okay, only time for a very quick note here. Desi Doyen, they have added a uh, another Democratic debate next oh, week. Oh, boy. Well, don't sound so happy about it. <laughs> That's just a lot of work. <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton will face off in Brooklyn, which is Bernie Sanders' uh, hometown and, of course, in Hillary Clinton's sort of home state because she was the senator there. So there will be yet another debate. Buckle up for that next week. Of course, we'll uh, have full coverage of Wisconsin primary results and whatever other messes happen up there in the Badger State on tomorrow's broadcast. Until then, my thanks to you, Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to David Dayan of Salon and Fiscal Times, and of course to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes where you can subscribe. It's free. And uh, drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Twitters and the Facebooks, I am simply the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.